Well, welcome everybody. Thank you for joining us at worship today at Wilshire. Thanks for everybody who's with us online. We are glad to have you. Jeremy is blessing the Stillwater Church of Christ on Duck Street in Stillwater uh, today. That's where he is, and we are grateful. We're proud of him. We miss him, but we're proud of the work that he's doing uh, and, and very grateful for the talents that he has. When was the last time you had a preacher tell you to develop an addiction? I want you to develop an addiction. I want you to get so addicted that some of your friends and family are going to go, hey, you need to back off a little bit. You need to, you need to chill this down. I have an addiction that from the Wilshire pulpit I am going to recommend to you today. Tell you what it is in a minute, though. First, I'm going to ask you this question. What's wrong with human life? What's the problem that we are facing? Lots of people have addressed that question. So many cultures around the world have talked about it. So many intellectuals in Western culture have thought about it. What's wrong with human life? I, don't, I can't think of one intellectual who said, nope, everything's fine. I, I, don't, I can't think of any. Because we all know something's messed up with the way human life works. And, the, and, and, and what generates all the buzz is, yeah, but what's the solution? If you ask Marx, Karl Marx, and the Marxists, the whole problem is greed, money, capitalism, all the evils of society. We could get rid of it all. We could institute paradise on earth if we could just get rid of the system of capital of money. Maybe. Just because he was wrong doesn't mean he was all wrong. There are some really bad things about the way we manage money in this world. It's a beast that eats people sometimes. It's true. If you listen to the anti-Marxists in the 20th century, people like Hitler or uh, Mussolini, Franco, they would say just the opposite. Capital is our salvation. Putting power in the hands of the, of the few who know how to use money and use power, that's what's going to make human life worth living. If you listen to the Freudians, they've got a solution. I don't even know what it is. Newell's not here. I could really pontificate. I don't see Newell. But I'm scared too because he does watch the tapes. Everybody's got opinions. What's wrong with human life? The fact is, every human being knows really what's wrong. We just don't like what that means. You've known it your whole life. It's kind of like the Pythagorean theorem. When somebody explains the Pythagorean theorem, you go, oh, yeah. It's not like, oh, who knew? 
It's like, oh, yeah, that follows. And you know this, too. You know this exactly. Everybody, pick a spot on the pew in front of you and imagine a big red button. Come on, do it. Imagine a big red button. You got it? Don't press it yet. You don't even know what I'm going to make it do, right? So don't press it, but just imagine it. You're already there. Whatever happens. It already happened to you. All right, you got a button? Imagine it. This is a button that will make all your dreams come true. You going to press it? One, two, three. You know it's a preacher trap, right? One, two, three, go. <laughs> it's going to make all your dreams come true. It's going to give you everything your heart desires. Now, before you press it, think about that. Are all your dreams really dreams that you want to have come true? Are all your desires good desires? Think about the desires you kind of hide from yourself even. You certainly hide from other people. This button's going to make them all come true. You want to press it now? In fact, you've known your whole life, really, that as your brain operates here in the kingdom of the world, if you got everything you wanted, life would not be heaven. Life would be hell. Very, very quickly. Because what you want is so messed up. It's so tainted. You want some good things, obviously, but, but you got this bad mix of stuff. Now imagine there's another button you could push, and in it, you would, you would stop wanting bad things. You would only want good things. You're, you're, you would get better, and you would get mature, and the things you want would be good things. Plenty of good things in God's world to want. You wanted to come to church today. That's a really good thing to want. You want to have a nice, nourishing lunch today. That's a really good thing. To, plenty of good things in God's world to want. You get to the place where that's all you want. You want only the good things. That's a pretty good button to push, but no guarantee you're going to get it. And after a while, wanting things and not having them, that's also pretty hellish. What you've known your whole life, really, is that happiness requires both getting everything that you want and wanting only what is good. That's the truth. You've known that your whole life. By the way, I didn't make this up. This is old. This is the deep knowledge. Eastern and Western philosophies have said things, these things. Augusta, an African theologian, said this in the fourth century. What you want, and the only thing that can make you happy, is to have everything that your heart desires and your heart to desire only what is good. Trouble is, look around the kingdom of the world that you live in. That's not available. 
kingdom of the world has its hooks in your heart. It keeps pulling you away. The kingdom of the world keeps taking away even your good desires, frustrating you. Where can you get that merging of the two sides of the human equation that will actually make you happy? There's only one place. You need a God of perfect goodness and justice who wants exactly the same as all the good desires for you. And a God of perfect power, unrivaled, no chance of what you want being taken away if he is on your side. You want the one God. You've wanted that your whole life. That's just one of many ways in which really in your deepest heart you know you are empty without God. Every human being kind of knows that. We are empty without, we want to be close to God. This sermon series is about all the places where we have explicit promises in Scripture about God being with us because our hearts more than anything else, need to be with God, want to be with God. So today I'm going to recommend an addiction to you, an addiction of one of the great ways to have God in your life, to experience him. You can go out today and have an encounter with God. Well, you're having one right now. That's another sermon. You can go out today and have this experience, and I'd like you to get addicted to this. Jesus describes it this way. One of the ways in which he gives us a picture of what the judgment day will be like is in Matthew chapter 25. If you've got study sheets, I put it there for you. It's in Matthew chapter 25. It starts in verse 31 if you're following in your Bibles. There are many pictures of the judgment day, which tells us probably whatever it's actually like is a little bit beyond words. But anyway, this is one of the pictures Scripture gives us of judgment day. And Jesus says it like this. When the Son of Man, Jesus, comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will, be separa he will separate the people one from another as a shep shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. You're meant to be kings and queens. That kingdom is there. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I was naked, 
and you put clothes on my back. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison. You came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink, or when did we see you as a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and put clothes on your back? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, truly I tell you, whenever you did, whatever you did for one of the least of these my brothers and sisters, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you didn't invite me in. I needed clothes, you didn't clothe me. I was sick, I was in prison, you didn't look after me at all. They will also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and didn't help you? And he'll reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you didn't do for me. Then they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. You want to have an experience of Jesus, God in the flesh today, go alleviate suffering today. It's as simple as that. You want God in your life. You need God in your life. And, and every time, you alleviate suffering. I don't care if you know you use it to get people to come to church or not. I don't think that's the point of this. It doesn't say anything about that. You alleviate suffering, and right then you are in contact with Jesus. It says, Jesus says, I was the one you were helping. Or I was the one you were refusing to help. That's Jesus. It is Jesus we're seeing whenever we see someone who is suffering. We are in contact with Jesus, God in flesh. Every time you have one of those experiences where someone is truly suffering. Suffering, by the way, is not, not getting to watch the program you want to watch, by the way. This is, these are serious needs. But when people are in need and our hearts are moved to do something about it, we are in contact with Jesus Christ. We are ministering to Jesus Christ. It's the face of Jesus Christ we see. And I'll tell you something. That can get to be an addiction. You can get to the place where your friends and family say, I think you're being a little too generous. One of the ways that Christianity gets made fun of early on in the Roman Empire, one of the satirists, 
Apollaeus, makes fun of the Christians because they're so generous. They're so stupid. You just go in and pretend like you believe their stuff and they'll give you, they'll give you things. I would love it. And I do love it when Christianity has that reputation. That we are generous to a fault. We're addicted to generosity, to alleviating suffering. That's a good thing because it's a God thing. God is in our lives the more that we respond to the suffering of others. And that leads to a couple of implications that I want to kind of draw your attention to because I think they're important as we think about what it is that we're supposed to be doing now. Hebrews 2, which we talked about in the Lord's Supper talk, says right now we don't see Jesus as exalted Lord, where he's visibly Lord. We know he is, we know he's exalted, that's all going to become visible someday. Right now, we don't see it. We're still living in the present age, the fallen age. What are we supposed to be doing now? And I think what this means is, when you take steps to alleviate suffering, Jesus is with you when you do that. Jesus is with us when we change the world to ease suffering. However that looks, when you're looking out ahead and planning to keep your own family fed, that's Jesus. When your two-year-old is hungry and you feed them, and they're really hungry and not just, I didn't want to eat what you prepared, so now I'm hungry five minutes later, but I mean really hungry, that's Jesus in the face of that two-year-old. And, and, and there's so many opportunities for us to put clothes on people's back and to visit those who are sick and to comfort those who are in pain. And they're seriously in pain. And we can do it. And every time we do it, Jesus is with us. And as we think about how we can set up systems that will alleviate suffering and, and deal with problems even before they arise, that's, that's Jesus too. And that's something that Christianity has been famous for. Christians were thought so weird in the ancient world. Plague of, uh, that occurs in the third century. The Roman aristocrats, everybody who could afford to, uh, the Roman aristocrats, ran from the cities. Christians came into the cities to take care of those who were sick and dying. And many of them died off because of that. I mean, many Christians weren't immune to the disease. They caught it too, and they died. People thought they were crazy. You're crazy. You're addicted to this giving thing. Why would you do that, alleviating suffering? What's wrong with you? Why would you think that way? The answer is Matthew 25. That's Jesus that is that old woman who's dying of the plague. That's Jesus that... that 12-year-old kid that's sick of the plague. and I can't let Jesus die without doing anything about that. That's been a characteristic of Christianity where we Christians are moved, not just in our heads but in our hearts, to say, I can't stand by and let suffering happen. 
first actual hospitals, there, there are precursor institutions that are kind of like hospitals, but the first actual hospital in the Western Hemisphere and the first system of hospitals anywhere in the world was instituted by the Christian church. Bishops started saying every place that we build a cathedral, a church that has a bishop in it, we're going to build a school and we're going to build a hospital. Every place. That starts happening by the 5th century, if not earlier. Why? Because those sick people don't just look like poor sick people. Christians have kind of got this weird addiction in their head that says, oh, it's Jesus. I can't just turn the other way when it's Jesus. That's happened over and over and over again. When there is a catastrophe anywhere in the world and you turn on the news coverage, there is a symbol you will see on the tents of the people who are there helping. What's that symbol? You know what it is. It's red. But it's not in the shape of a question mark. It's not in the shape of a microscope. It's in the shape of a cross. Like a lot of things built by Christians, it's now a pretty secular, non-religious organization, the Red Cross, but but you understand the impulse to help has been a driving impulse for Christians. That is a healthy addiction. And you know why? Because every time you alleviate suffering, you are in contact with Jesus Christ. That's what this passage says and others do too. There are a lot of terrible addictions that will kill you. It will eat your brain and eat your relationships and destroy your life. This is an addiction that will do nothing but good in your life. You can actually get addicted to it. Where you have to exercise willpower or won't power to say, hey, I, I would love to, I just, I'm, I, I can't, I can't do more right now. But I will. I'm working on it. I'll get more so I can give more. It's a good addiction to have. Or you see suffering and you can't turn away. You are looking for someone to help. One of the early Christian documents, the Didache, Teaching of the Twelve, second century as far as we can tell, so right after the close of the New Testament. One Christian community, the, the teaching document they had, this Teaching of the Twelve, the Didache, says your, your money should itch or sweat in your hand until you figure out who, you, who, who needs it, who you should give it to, who really needs it. That's an addiction. That's a monkey on your back, right? That's what that's describing. That's a good addiction to have. That's going to only do you good. That's going to only help you. Because every time you do that, Jesus is in your life. He's promised to be there. I teach a class, a graduate class over at OC, on secularization. Secularization is the process whereby 
cultures or governments or institutions of any kind go from being explicitly religious to being non-religious. Western Europe was explicitly religious, very Christian, established Christian churches, actually tax-supported Christian churches in all of the Western European countries. The United States was kind of weird when it was started. It said, well, the government of the United States won't establish any religion. We won't have a tax-supported federal religion. The states could kind of have some, but, but the, the government couldn't. And eventually we got to the place where we said, no, not even the states can have an established tax-supported religion. That's all secularization. That's becoming secular. And, and it's interesting to read the textbooks. Even the you know, non-religious textbooks kind of ask the question, well, how do we become secular? How did that happen? How did you go from being a Christian culture to being a non-Christian culture? How did you go from having Christianity all over politics and really in charge politically to having less and less political power? It's like that's where they start the story? Is that the apex of Christian political power? which is about the 1200s in European history, not that long ago. And it's so weird because when I read my New Testament, I'm a New Testament Christian, so are you. When I read my New Testament, I don't see anybody having much political power that I'm rooting for in here. Do you? I don't see anybody having the authorities on their side very often. I see Christianity persecuted. I see Christianity having to, to, to survive government power. How did Christianity go from a persecuted, tiny religion to a religion that had so much political power? How did that happen? Well, I'm telling you. It didn't happen by getting votes. It happened because Christians took care of sick people. And they fed hungry people. They went out to the hillsides and babies that had been thrown out to die on the hillsides, Christians raced out there to try and beat the slave traders to grab up those babies and raise them as Christians. That's how it happened. Christianity became a force not because of any political power or machinations or maneuverings, but because it followed what Matthew 25 says. I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was naked, Jesus says, and you put clothes on my back. Here's a message I would really like for you to take home and meditate on. The world needs Christians to love Jesus by loving others. The world needs that. But Christians don't need the world to do that. Constantine's the one who made 
Christianity, sort of the legal religion and then the dominant religion in the Roman Empire. And he didn't do it because the Christians had the votes or anything. He did it because for him, that was a political game. It gave him a little boost of power he needed to win the battle he was in and to win the politics that he was engaged in. From time to time, the world governments are going to use Christianity when it's to their advantage. From time to time, they're going to persecute Christianity when that seems to be to their advantage. Politicians are going to say wonderful things about Christianity. They're going to say horrible things about Christianity. That's the world you live in. That's the world we are in. This is the present age. We don't have to have the approval of the present world to love Jesus by loving the world. You get it? One of the things that worries me right now in our culture is that Christians who remember what it was like when we had a more overt power base in American culture and seeing that America is becoming more and more post-Christian, think that we can reverse the trend through exercising political power. I'm worried about that. I see that driving away some of our young people. Because here's the problem with politics. <laughs> I'm just telling you my heart now, church. Here's the problem with politics. Politics is always a mix. There are noble, righteous, idealistic people in politics. There's also really bad people in politics. Politics runs on justice and truth, but sadly, some of the levers of power are greed and fear and ambition. And I guarantee you, there is a special set of temptations whenever you're involved in politics. If you're not involved, they don't come up as much in quite the same way. But if you're involved deeply in politics, there's a special set of temptations. At some point, Satan is going to show up and say, I can give you the kingdoms of the world, at least the kingdom you're interested in. All you got to do, bow down to me. I can pull those levers that I have control of, greed, fear, hatred, domination. I can do that for you. All you got to do is bow to me. And I can give you what you want. And that's going to happen. And it is hard, hard for Christians to be in politics. You find yourself compromising or being asked to compromise, to look the other way when people are corrupt, to look the other way when people lie, to look the other way when people say things that are and do things that are explicitly against the gospel. It's just, we don't need political victories to win victories for Jesus, in my opinion. We don't. And that's not the way, that's not the reason Christianity had the position it once had. And that's not the reason Christianity will, there's coming a day when people will turn back to Christianity, I'm sure. 
if we stay true to Jesus Christ. Feed the hungry. Give drink to the thirsty. Visit those who are in prison and who are sick. Put clothes on the back of the needy. Love Jesus by loving those who are suffering. You want to do this to the nth degree? You want to really sink your teeth into this addiction? Someone that is your political enemy who says things that you just can't stand, who does things that just turn your stomach. Love them. When they're hungry, feed them. When they're thirsty, give them something to drink. Romans 12 says, do that. Leave burning coals of fire on their heads. But better than that, that means you're not overcome by evil. That means you are working to overcome evil with good. I was hungry. And you gave me something to eat. Let's pray. Dear God and Father, we thank you for the blessings of Jesus Christ. God, we want to be stronger in our willingness to be generous. We know you have given us and given us and given us and given us the things that we need and even so many of the things that we want. And God, we want to imitate you by being givers. We don't have much compared to you, but we have some and we want to give to those who are hurting to those who are suffering. You've trained us to do some of that. We want to do more. God, we want to be like you, and we want you in our lives. Lead us in this path. These things we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. If you need to respond to God's invitation, if you need prayers or help, and you want to talk about that publicly to the congregation, you can come forward and tell us what we can do for you, ask for prayers that you need, or if today is the day that you want to put on Jesus Christ, in baptism. If you want to be washed and cleansed, we invite you to come as we stand and are led in song.